full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The concept of an app store where you can easily get you know, applications or even build a custom application and then share it with other people. That's a fundamental experience of life today. It's a multi-billion dollar piece of the global economy that didn't exist before the iPhone. It's as simple as that. Hey, what did we ever do without the smartphone? A high-powered camera and camcorder in just about every hand. Ubers and selfies and Tinders and grinders and pretty much every gadget you could buy at the radio shacks of yesteryear, compressed into a glassy little rectangle. Ten years ago, Apple's late founder, Steve Jobs, brought the iPhone to a world that didn't much realize it needed the gadget. Apple has since sold more than a billion of these little computers, propelling it to a $750 billion market valuation. The iPhone alone would be one of the most valuable tech companies around. So then what in the heck can Apple do for an encore? Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, in my humble opinion, the very best market in all of Virginia. Delectable coffees, helpful stewards, delicious hot daily breakfast, Indian Wednesdays, Mexican Fridays, and the chillax wine bar stylings of the beat. No advertising to children, no partially hydrogenated jibber-jabber. Visit them at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, atop Richmond's Carytown, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from New York is veteran tech writer and editor Eric Hesseldahl. He was at Business Week with me uh, when the iPhone was launched 10 years ago. He subsequently was at uh, Bloomberg for a short stint and All Things Digital, which became Recode. Uh, you are now a free agent and, and very much in demand. How are you, sir? Very good. Thanks for having me on. I just want to go back to that time. I remember Steve Jobs uh Sometime in the spring of 2007, visiting us at Business Week with this curiosity, um, I saw him getting into the elevator. I bet you were at that meeting because you ran our Apple blog. Um, he wanted to convince the world that it needed an iPhone. What were your initial impressions? Uh, my initial impressions, I, I was at that meeting. Your, your impression is correct. And what I remember is that uh, we talked about two things in that meeting. Uh, we talked about stock options backdating, which was a scandal that had kind of uh, plagued Apple a little bit in 2006. And we argued about it a little bit, and he was kind of angry about some of the coverage that we had done. And then we paused, and then he reached into a very uh, a large briefcase uh, that had been set uh, up uh, with several iPhone uh, prototypes in it, and he brought it out. At this point, the iPhone had been released or not released it had been demonstrated at the mac world show uh that january and i think this was february and he handed out the prototypes to all of us and we all got to play with one and and the tenor of the meeting really changed he kicked into um salesman he was the demonstrator in chief you know the way that he was on stage that personality kicked in and he was he was on full that day he was he was he was turned up to 10. Let me ask you, since that fateful time, was it in 2001 that the initial uh, or 2002 that the initial iPod was introduced? Did you suspect that this was kind of a Trojan horse, that they would, over the, the coming years, keep adding functionality onto it, whether, you know, a camera, a crude camera or a calendar until it was like the, the infamous Apple Newton redone, effectively the revenge of the Apple Newton? 
Yeah, very much so. It was um, almost right away once Apple really proved that the iPod could work. Um, people began wondering, well, can that same functionality be added into a phone? You know, people began talking about convergence of multiple devices at that point. And, you know, we had, you know, separate PDAs and then we had separate cell phones and now we had separate music players and then there were GPS devices. And, you know, there were people who were kind of looking ahead about 10 years and thinking, oh, this could all really be, uh, you know, poured into one single device, the phone. But the phones at that time were very clunky. They really couldn't do very much and really didn't have a lot of computing power and you know apple had the capacity had the ability to kind of rethink all those devices in some meaningful way and they did it what i don't understand is how he could just take the networks for granted i remember the story in the uh Toronto correspondent who wrote the, uh, the the story about the rise and fall of research in motion blackberry corp effectively how terrified these executives were when they handled their first iPhone in 2007, and they effectively realized, oh, shit, this guy put a full browser on this. And if you remember the old crude browser on the BlackBerry Pearl and the BlackBerry Bold, it wasn't exactly comfortable to, to, to go around on things like that. You had to squint. Uh, you had to have pages that were optimized for BlackBerry. Steve Jobs didn't seem to care about that. He threw that caution into the wind. And I remember writing a story uh, in 2010, early 2010, about the huge problems they faced in New York and San Francisco with all these uh, iHogs, these Apple adopters who were, you know, at that time it was exclusive to AT&T wireless initially. Uh, they were just bringing the network down. Yeah, that's exactly what was happening. We didn't have LTE networks yet. That was one thing. Uh, the 4G technology that's pretty much available in every major metropolitan area and a lot of suburban areas now, too. We didn't have that yet. Um, so we were living on 3G at that point. And so it was pretty easy to uh, clog up a network with apps like Facebook or or what have you. Um, but uh, – uh, but it's funny you should bring up Research in Motion because at about the same time, it was between the announcement of the iPhone and the release of the iPhone. I went up to Hamilton and I tried to engage both the CEOs. You went up uh, to Canada, to outside I went of up Toronto. To Canada, outside Toronto, to Hamilton, uh, which is where uh, BlackBerry, we, we called it Research in Motion then, was, was headquartered. Uh, still is, I think. And, um, and I sat with both CEOs separately, Jim and, and Mike, Mike Lazaridis and Jim Basile. And I tried to get them to engage on the subject of the iPhone. And it was a subject that they simply wouldn't talk about. And I came back basically without a story. Um, and it was really frustrating because all they really wanted to do was talk about, you know, their next generation of phones and how they were going to disintermediate the carriers. And, you know, you're right. They were actually scared. They, they had no idea, no, no meaningful response to what was coming. And there was, you know, all kinds of assumptions in the industry that the iPhone was going to succeed. Uh, there was no proof yet, but succeed it did. You know, it was a very strange introduction to the world of Apple for me. I was a PC user. You remember at the old Business Week, they gave us all these Dell laptops. You could fry an egg on those Dell laptops. They would overheat so quickly. And yeah, yeah. At what point people forget? I mean, you covered Dell at Recode. At one, you know, at, at one point, Dell was the master of the universe. Uh, Twenty years ago, 
1997, uh, when Apple was potentially 90 days away from bankruptcy, Michael Dell, the founder of Dell, which is on top of the world then, says that they should just maybe consider winding the whole thing down and giving the rest of the money back to shareholders. And it is stunning to me the extent to which the iPhone and then subsequently the iPad and the halo effect it had on the MacBook and the um, uh, iMac and everything else around that architecture. And I look around my house right now and I have an Apple TV and it syncs well with the iCloud and the photos we share with my brother and his family and my in-laws. Dell is nowhere in the picture. Sony is nowhere in the picture. IBM or Lenovo or those players, HP, nowhere in my life. And I don't think that I'm the exception to the rule. I mean, this has really vanquished a lot of the biggest names in, in all of technology. Yeah, it, it says a lot that when Michael Dell actually went and did a leveraged buyout of uh, of the company, he took it private. He only needed to raise about twenty five or twenty seven billion dollars. I forget the precise figure, but it was, you know, when you compare it to Apple's uh, market cap, which is now seven hundred and fifty, and even at that time. In 2013, it was well north of $100 billion, probably $200 billion. It's been in the hundreds of billions for several years now. You know, the, 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 the complete transposition of who was in charge of what. Um, there was a fundamental thought in 2003 that really emerged that the only thing that you should really do in IT, and, and this is speaking about corporate IT at this point, is commoditize, 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 lower your costs as much as possible. And that's what Dell essentially did. And Dell basically took advantage of Intel and did very little research and development and basically relied on Intel to to design the inner workings of its machines so that all it really had to do was wrap plastic and then outsource the manufacturing. That was the Dell story, and it, and it worked for its time. And, and Dell was really important and innovative in, in, in what it did. But what it didn't do was think about the experience, the ultimate experience. It didn't think about having a control over you know that moment when you try and surprise and delight a, a, a user. And Steve Jobs held true to that and made it part of the Apple aesthetic, a permanent part of the Apple aesthetic. And when, you know, when he brought the company kind of back to life from, you know, the beginnings with the, with the, with the iMac and then the iPod and, and, and then, you know, as he progressed to the, to the iPhone, that never wavered. That commitment to a delightful experience never wavered one bit. And there was an early version of the iPhone. I think you can read this in the biography that, didn't live up to his standards, and he sent the team back to start from scratch. And so there were rumors. There were rumors of phones uh, dating back. The earliest time that I remember hearing a rumor about a phone was about 2004, mm. uh, late 2004, maybe early 2005. And then they kind of went quiet. The, the rumor mills went quiet for a while. And th I think that was about that time when that first generation attempt at a phone failed went back to the drawing board and then came back and then about late 2006 into early 2007 is when it really picked up again. And so we saw the iPhone really uh, first demonstrated in January 2007 and then released again, uh, released to the public for us to buy uh, 10 years ago this week.
I have an interesting inception with this in the year 1997, which is a really fateful year, the summer of 1997 for Apple mm-hmm. and Steve Jobs and his comeback to the company and ta- taking it from death's doorstep uh, and this almost humiliating bailout he had to take from Microsoft in order to give it a second chance. I mean, back then, Wintel was was quite a monopoly. Nobody was – you know, Apple had its – its uh, what was it? The Power PC? What was it called? The Power Mac? Um mm-hmm. And Power I, PC, I, it was the Motorola chip. The Motorola chip. I was in college. There were a handful of diehards and, and programmers and programmers who were using it. But by and large, everybody wanted a, a you know a Pentium PC, and you wanted the fastest thing, and you were increasingly looking into flat screen displays, and it was really Windows and Intel and Dell's world to lose. But I also remember going back and how amazed I was that year. I, I can remember my first MP3 in 1997 was Foo Fighters Everlong. And I just played that thing constantly on my PC laptop. And did no one's imagination really wrap around the fact that, okay, this is where it's headed. The CD is going to be ripped and, uh, you know, compressed out of this thing. And we need handheld devices. I remember there were a handful of uh, things from, you know, one of them was a Korean MP3 manufacturer. There were a couple of other clunky players at the turn of the century, but no one who had really streamlined the experience and made it compact. And and um, do you remember how you could just touch the trackpad and move the tracks around? You felt so futuristic with the individual iPod, which after all was the the, the kernel of the seed of the idea for the iPhone, which was so revolutionary. Mm-hmm. That's correct. You're correct. There was a there was one major market. Uh, producer of mp3 players that i remember about 1999 98 maybe even 97 it was called the diamond rio the diamond rio yeah i remember that <laughs> yeah and then there were a few other copycats and then and then there i think it was a korean company i forget its name that that started putting hard drives in the players that was as opposed to flash memory and that was that plus the firewire connection was really what the first ipod was about and, and if you recall it really only worked for the mac but then it was a it was an iterative process First, it, uh, it it worked for Windows, and then once it worked for Windows, then it had an online store, iTunes Music Store, and then of course, you know, the, the speculation began about a phone, and so, um, so my my uh, anecdotes that I'd like to tell about this is that when I first reviewed it, um, I, I called the iPhone an extraordinary device, and one of the things that, that I first noticed about it was I was I was watching a television show, you know, loaded on it from iTunes, and and I was and I was watching and had the headphones in my ears, and um, suddenly the audio cut out. It, it just it, it didn't cut; it faded for a split second, and then the phone began to ring that that distinctive marimba tone that do 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 that we all know, um, really distinctive to the iPhone, and it indicated that I was getting a phone call. And it was just it was this moment of classy consideration, like someone. And I wrote in I wrote in the review. I said it is it's as if someone had just tapped you on the shoulder to interrupt and, and, and say, I'm sorry for interrupting, but someone's calling. And and then I could decide if I wanted to take the call or keep watching the TV show. And that was a, a moment, uh, I called it an iPhone moment. And, and I said that there were thousands of those unfolding. These moments of, of surprise and delight were just simple little touches 
really made the difference, really made the experience. I also liked the uh, the motion of sweeping between uh, cities, you know, for the weather report, sweeping between Miami and Los Angeles and New York, uh, and, you know, sweeping between photographs. You know, it became so common. And now we talk about swiping right and left on Twitter. Tinder and, and dating apps and such. It's just such a natural thing. If you can't swipe something in an application on a, on a phone, whether it's an iPhone or an Android or, you know, some other kind of tablet, you think something's wrong. I've seen video of babies who are handed iPads and figure out how to swipe between photographs. I think my daughter is just a few months, probably a few weeks from being able to do it herself. And then handed a paper magazine, and they try to swipe, and it no, I've noticed work the same them. thing. It doesn't work yeah. that way. A whole generation has come of age with that moving screen. We are talking to Eric Hesseldahl here on Full Disclosure. He's been covering technology for more than twenty years. He was most recently at Recode, which was formerly All Things D. He started his column uh, at, at the Idaho State Journal. What was it in, in nineteen ninety six? Yes, it was nineteen ninety six, and I was an internet neophyte. And you and I crossed pads at Business Week uh, from, say, let's say 2005 to 2010, where you ran a, a really popular online column and blog we called Bite of the Apple, devoted to all things Apple. Prior to that, you were senior editor and technology columnist at Forbes.com. You, um, how many Apple products do you have in the house right now? Right now, I'm talking to you on a MacBook Air. Um, a few minutes ago, my wife was watching television with an Apple TV. There are two iPads in the house. There's one more MacBook Pro that's about to be retired and replaced with a new one. Um, yeah, th those are the ones. Those are the ones. Oh, and there's um, two iPhones, mine and my wife's. I count about seven or eight products in my house, and um, I, you know, believe it or not, the first Apple product I bought was when Bloomberg acquired us at Business Week, and um, they brought us in, and the editor gave us all brand new iMacs, and that was when my son was born, and I was looking at his photo on the iMac, which wasn't, it was even the pre-retina technology, and it just looked so much better, and there was so much more you could do with screen grabs and, and that, and, and that then shoehorned me into the iPod Touch experience, believe it or not, I didn't have one until 2010, and then I finally took the dive and got rid of my you know, BlackBerry curve, and, and there's no looking back. There is a real halo effect. I'll say one thing I have a problem with with, with these guys is uh, the Apple TV seems really half-assed. It seems like a, it should be a logical continuation of the whole iPhone, iPad architecture thing, but it's kind of – it feels like an afterthought. Yeah, it's you'd be hard-pressed to really, truly say that Apple has distinguished itself with Apple TV in a way that is different fundamentally from, say, Roku or the Amazon Fire Stick. Um, and I have all three of those devices, and I use them for different things and in different rooms of the house for different reasons. I tend to gravitate to the Apple TV um, if for no other reason that I just tend to like it. And mine is an older one, not the not the later generation. Um, but I also like the Fire Stick very much. And so, yeah, I would agree with you that Apple hasn't really distinguished itself. The rumor mill has always been that Apple is working on a full-scale television set with the Apple TV, you know, software and interface and experience built in. But it's never been materialized no one's quite sure why but hasn't that ship sailed i mean i i walked into a costco yesterday with my mother 
Um, I have not been in one in maybe a decade, and they are giving away 1080p and even 4K TVs. The television industry, I mean, you talk about cord cutting. We are used to binging and, and Netflix and chilling on our uh, iPhone 7 S Pluses and our iPads and at worst, maybe our MacBooks. Uh, why would they go backwards into a TV right now? It seems like they could have done that when it when it really mattered. And now people are just not that interested in TV anymore. Am I wrong? I, I no, I think you're absolutely correct. I think the ship did sail. I think the I think the initial idea for the next logical step with Apple TV was to do a, a, what we would now call a smart TV. But other vendors got there first. Um, I think uh, I, I think the ship did sail before Apple could get a product out, and so I think it's tried to push the envelope with you know voice searching with Siri on the current generation of Apple TV, and you know apps and gaming and other things that some of the other vendors don't do quite as well. Um, the one thing that Apple does have going for it is it has a very robust, extremely robust software uh, development uh, community. It pays out something on the order of, I think, 8 or $10 billion over the lifetime of, of uh, the App Store. And the App Store isn't just for the iPhone and it isn't just for Apple TV anymore. It's for the Mac, it's for uh, Apple TV and the iPad and, and so forth. And so the entire ecosystem is tied up in the App Store and it's it's a commerce engine and Apple takes a takes a piece of the action obviously. But then you know if you're gonna if you're gonna make money on your app you can you can do quite well. Eric, what if the knock uh, out there that Apple right now, which as you say is worth seven hundred and fifty billion dollars, recently it was worth eight hundred billion and people are suggesting it might go you know, it, it might hit that unprecedented trillion-dollar threshold. Um, the, the knock is that this has become iPhone Corporation. If you strip out the iPhone, the rest of the business is not all that exciting. I mean, it's better than the traditional PC business, but is the MacBook really moving the needle? Is the Apple Watch moving the needle? Is the iPad, which is kind of, you know, petered out. It was really adopted quickly in, in 2010 and 2011. For better or for worse, this is an iPhone company. Yep, it really is. There's just really no, uh, no, no way to say it any other way. Apple stock moves up or down based on how many phones move. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a certain fear about peak iPhone. And if, you know, too many people in the world adopt iPhones, um, what does that say about the potential for growth? Well, you have to get, you have to get the people who own them excited about upgrading again. And one of the interesting things that has sort of happened, and this happened very early with the iPad. Yeah, people bought an iPad and they found that, you know, it, it lasted them several years. I last bought an iPad in 2013 and haven't replaced it. And it's now going on, you know, four, almost five years old. No need to replace it because it's working just fine. Um, there's no reason to replace the phone quite, you know, on every every two year cycle the way Apple, you know, used to be able to count on you to do so. And so um, there is a worry about peak iPhone, and the analysts do worry about it. And so, you know, that's why we hear rumors about, you know, an Apple 
you know, designed self-driving car. Um, you know, Apple needs to fundamentally push, push the, uh, push the envelope away from things that you could hold in your hand or put in your briefcase and, and rethink the, uh, rethink the paradigm quite a bit in a much more meaningful way and compete with the Ubers and the, and the, uh, you know, the Teslas of the world where a lot of like, you know, really fundamental innovation is going on. And so I, I do believe that there is an Apple car in a lab somewhere in Silicon Valley and, I do believe that uh, we'll see it, you know, in the next few years. What I want to get at again, and you know, and I flicked at it earlier. This company was twenty years ago this summer, potentially ninety days away from bankruptcy. Uh, Bill Gates and Microsoft threw it a lifeline, you know, agreed to provide what was it, office software for Apple computers uh, and some sort of capital injection and preferred stock purchase or stock purchase, even though it was kind of de minimis in the grand scheme of things, I have I have posited in the past that it was arguably the worst investment in history because Apple then over the next 10 years proceeds to drink Microsoft's milkshake. Not that Bill Gates could ever have seen that. It was maybe uh, antitrust self-inoculation back then. But I mean, what would have happened if he didn't get that lifeline? I mean, what would Steve Jobs, what would his option have been to, to take the company through bankruptcy? Maybe you wouldn't have the iMac be successful, those colorful candy looking iMacs from 2001 and 2002. I mean, do you ever wonder? Oh, well, of course I wonder. I mean, there were rumors that Larry Ellison was interested in buying it and testing out his theory of what we now, what he called then the network computer, which essentially all desktop computers are now because they're connected to the cloud. You know, the phone is a network computer. The tablet is a network computer because, you know, 90% of the time we're connecting to cloud-based services that, you know, the software doesn't run on the device in, in front of us or, or only minimally does. The, the heavy listing for co the compute is done elsewhere. Um, so there were rumors that that was going to happen. It was actually even worse than you than you know. In 1995, before jobs had even returned, um, there was a moment when there was only two months of working capital in the bank, and there was some Herculean uh, financing, um, issuing of new debt and things like that that really kept the lights on. It was actually really, really bad, um, far worse than most shareholders even really understood at the time. Um, but uh, but yeah, the 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 hundred million dollars, I think it was what it was from uh, uh, from Gates, uh, was definitely. Uh, a vote of confidence, if not financial confidence. It, it gave Apple uh, running room, and it gave it a chance to prove that it could bring itself back from the brink. And, and I think, you know, I think it, it worked well. And I, and I would argue in the long term, it, it wasn't so much about a financial investment for Bill Gates. I think, you know, Gates had staked his company early on building software for the Mac when Microsoft was, you know, just getting not really started, but really getting its legs. Um, Apple was a key partner. And um, you have to go back and watch the uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley movie uh, from 1998 to see that uh, to see that story told in an okay fashion, not entirely correct. Um, but, uh, but it was pretty clear, you know, Steve Jobs was the king at that point and Bill Gates was the, was the junior partner in that relationship for quite some time until, you know, the bit flipped. And I think it's flipped back again. I think Apple is the choice for software developers 
uh, as, as computer. When you see software developers working now, 90% of the time they're working on a Mac. And it's because it's flexible and it, and it, and it does all those things and it offers all that configurability that a, that a software developer needs. And so what's also very helpful to know is that most of that software development is taking place in the cloud. Software that runs in a browser doesn't matter or what kind of browser it is. It may be Google Chrome, it may be Apple Safari, it may be Microsoft, whatever their name of their browser is these days. And Microsoft has gotten the cloud religion. And so they're probably, I think, the second largest supplier of cloud computing services after Amazon. And we haven't even spoken about Amazon yet. And so Microsoft has taken ample advantage of the shifts in the way that computing is done. And so I don't think Microsoft cares quite so much that you do everything in Windows um, as long as you do it and touch the Microsoft uh, universe somewhere. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of people who are saying that Microsoft has really upped its game in the last couple of years on the hardware front. They do the Surface notebooks that are essentially a, a tablet with a detachable keyboard. A lot oh, wait, of people. I, I did see a real one at the cafe a couple of weeks ago, like live outside yes. of a outside of a Circuit City and Best Buy, and it wasn't yes. an IT guy. It wasn't a it wasn't a floor model, so it, it, it has caught on. <laughs> Yeah, there there are a lot of people who were dedicated Mac users for a long time who are really excited about the Surface, and that's you know that's absolutely worth noting. Um, Microsoft has upped its game not only on the cloud computing front, as I mentioned before, but on the hardware front. And instead of just outsourcing all the hardware to the Dells and the HPs and the Lenovo's of the world the way it always has, it has begun producing its own hardware and competing with those partners. And that, you know, kind of upset some apple carts in the ecosystem, but it also challenged those other companies. The biggest problem with the Wintel uh, universe of computing, and, and, and it should be noted, by the way, that all Macs have Intel chips in them and have since 2006, um, but uh, Microsoft had to up its game and and make hardware that was exciting again. The hardware had become incredibly sleepy. Every time I went to a, a Windows demonstration or an Intel demonstration about the potential of new hardware, I walked out thinking it had just really been a snooze. Well, Eric, it was, it, was, it, was, it was their fault because if I – if I mean, from what I understand, they sucked all the profit and the life out of the business. The, the profit center was the software, not the hardware. So it, it caused a race to the bottom – and it initially gave rise to a Dell who could take advantage of kind of inventory arbitrage and whatnot. But that came home to bite Apple when it realized that it had starved its original equipment manufacturers like HP and Toshiba and Dell. And it had to go and scramble in the in the waning days of, of Steve Ballmer to come up with something like Surface, which is still woefully behind an iPad. Yeah, I, yeah you could argue. There, there are people who will argue that um, – uh, that will argue that point about whether the surface of the iPad. It's a it's a nice geek religious argument. Um, I'm more of a of an Apple guy mainly just because I prefer the the Apple software. But um, but yeah, they did have that is exactly what happened. They really did starve the experience in favor of 
cost and in a lot of things that that only engineers would care about like power efficiency you know and and chip performance i mean intel i have a lot of respect for intel because you know it is the founder of of pretty much everything that we do for the most part um you know moore's law has been a constant of the modern age since you know the late 1960s and because of it we have the capacity to have the conversation we're on right now talking on one computer to another and you'll encode that audio and it's because the compute power is so cheap and easy and you can you can get so much done with it now that is you know a fundamental fact of life that we could not have modern society without so and intel does it better than anybody else but even intel failed to see the potential for for the iPhone failed to get a meaningful uh, presence for its mobile, supposedly mobile processors in the iPhone, although it's just now beginning to get into that game, um, which is a much more complicated topic that I could get into about different chip suppliers and and, and uh, legal arguments and things like that that are ongoing right now. But but Intel really did miss the boat on mobile computing fundamentally, and it did so to its detriment and has never really meaningfully recovered. And that was a major strategic failure on the on the part of the management there and cost a couple CEOs their jobs. When we talk about a strategic failure, I see a you know it's 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 used a lot in kind of management postmortems, but a failure of imagination. You can argue that Steve Jobs was a hopeless romantic and you knew him and you worked with him and you followed him even when he it wasn't hip to follow him, even when he was washed out. And this is a person who returned your calls and they respected your bead and bite of the apple quite a bit. Um, it's amazing to me that a person who is not an engineer, who is not a you know down in the weeds person, comes up with this whimsical product that then topples several different big Nasdaq paradigms. I mean, we're talking taking it away from Intel, taking it away from HP, taking it away from Microsoft for the longest time. I mean, only recently has Microsoft got it gotten its footing back. Um, and it still blows my mind. I know we keep coming back to this, that this all started with a, you know, whimsical little music player and the MP3 in 2001 and 2002 in a very different world. Steve was more of an engineer than people give him credit for. Um, I, I happened to see a video of him the other day. I don't know where, you know, I think it was in my Facebook feed, but, but he grew up in Silicon Valley. And so there's sort of, that's kind of place where, you know, engineering is a little bit in the water. And the anecdote we told was he called, I think it was Bill Hewlett at Hewlett Packard. He was in junior high school and he had a school project and, you know, Bill Hewlett's name was in the, in the phone book. He was the uh, founder and or CEO of Hewlett Packard in those days. And, um, and he wanted to, see if there were any spare parts to build a frequency counter, you know, and this was a, this was a junior high school age kid. And, and, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he took the call. Hewlett took the call and made sure that, that, you know, the young Steve jobs got the parts, but he also built the relationship and made sure that that kid found a, found a job on the assembly line at Hewlett Packard that summer when school was out. And so he had a lot of that iterative knowledge that, built-in knowledge that just came from being a kid growing up in Silicon Valley. So he knew more about the engineering things than, than I think people give him credit for. Did he actually do write the code and things? No, he pushed other people to do that. But he had he had the overarching vision, and he knew what was possible, and then he also knew what would lo- what lie just over the horizon a little bit and 
push the engineers who did the, the heavy lifting to just lift a little more. And that was, that was, that was, I think his gift. Um, anecdote about that I can tell about, about Steve, um, concerns three articles I wrote about the iPhone. First was the, was the review that I read from you a little bit ago. Um, the second was a story that I wrote in October of 2007, and the title was Why I Will Not Buy an iPhone. And as you recall, the first iPhone had only a handful of applications on it that all came pre-installed, and the only third-party ones on it were YouTube and Google Maps. Google was the only third-party supplier of software at the time. There were no, there was no App Store right away. And I felt that this was an affront to Apple's heritage. There was no, no way for a software developer to legitimately build their own application and run it on the iPhone. And I thought that this was just wrong. And so I said, I won't buy an iPhone, and this is why. Because I had a BlackBerry, and I could get third-party applications and install them on a BlackBerry. And then I went and I made a case about some of them. Steve called me after reading that piece, and he said, he said, basically, I get it. Part of what we're doing with the iPhone right now is we're learning. And we don't want anybody to create applications that will tip over the AT&T network. Um, so we're learning how all this works. And, you know, he basically disclosed to me um, that there was a software developer kit for third-party developers. And it was it was expected to hit sometime in early March. And this had not been announced yet. And I sat on that fact for two weeks and shared it with a couple of colleagues. And finally, another colleague, Olga, Olga Karif, got confirmation of this fact from a second source. And I called him back and I said, okay, we've got second source confirmation on this software developer kit, an SDK for the iPhone. And and he didn't like that we'd gotten it, but I said we were going to go ahead and use it in a story. And so we broke that in a story at the end of October, um, basically saying that an SDK was coming for the iPhone. And he didn't like it, but we we did it because we, we had two sources at this point. And, um, and it was much bigger than either Olga or I were able to uh, to figure out. We uh, we were basically knocking on the tip of what became known as the iTunes App Store, which, you know, as we talked before, is a multi-billion-dollar business for the developers who write for it. And uh, you know, what would the iPhone be without the App Store? What would you know any uh, mobile device be without its uh, corresponding app store. Google Android has one. There are app stores for um, Salesforce.com and the enterprise world. You know, the concept of an app store where you can easily get, you know, applications or even build a custom application and then share it with other people. That's a fundamental experience of life today. It's a part of the global economy that simply didn't exist. It's a multi-billion dollar piece of the global economy that didn't exist before the iPhone. It's as simple as that. Uh, Eric, in the few minutes we have left, uh, I would love to get at the $250 billion question of what this company does with its unprecedented cash hoard. It's almost become an albatross or an embarrassment of riches. I mean, again, you go back to 20 years ago, very nearly bankrupt. You go back to the solvency problems of 1995. You go back to the skepticism that he faced, not just with the iPod, but with the iPhone when he went around and traveled with it. Like, how dare you imagine that it's not going to tip over AT&T's network, which it very nearly did in, in 2010. And despite all of that, this company is very nearly worth $800 billion and has a 
billion dollar cash hoard and growing. I mean, what, if anything, can it do with that? I mean, what would you like to see it do with that? Well, I know shareholders want to see more share buybacks. They want to see more dividends. Apple started paying a very healthy dividend, I think, oh, three, four years ago now. Um, so that's one thing. I've always argued that Apple could um, take a page from some of its Silicon Valley brethren. And, you know, Intel Capital uh, has always been an interesting vehicle for Intel to make investments in, in up-and-coming technology. I think Apple could do that um, with maybe, you know, a billion-dollar fund. Um, it's not a very original idea, but it's one that, you know, could – well, use one hundred one two hundred and fiftieth of that money, um, but uh, you know, uh, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, um, much of that cash is held overseas for tax reasons. We know the reasons why, um, and there's been a lot of interest in bringing it back to the United States. Um, you know, the, under repatriation. Apple's not alone in this problem, but the piles of cash that are largely held outside. So, you know, it would essentially for the United States in theory be some kind of a private economic stimulus as if we really needed one. But it's it's really hard to say. I mean, Apple has never been the kind of company with few exceptions to do large M&A deals. Apple has never been the one to, you know, be very lavish, although that new corporate headquarters in, in Cupertino is kind of lavish. It's uh, kind of expensive. Um, but uh, it's it's really hard to say. But I will say that it's an incredibly important hedge because if Apple ever loses its innovative edge, and you could argue that it may have, it could have a whiz-bang car that'll take it over the trillion-dollar uh, market cap uh, barrier very, very soon. But, you know, there's also sort of a mentality at Apple that harkens back to those days you mentioned, 1995, 1997, when, you know, there wasn't really enough money to keep the lights on, really. Um, you know, if something goes completely south and people turn their heads on, I turn away from the iPhone, they yeah, turn away from two, their Macs. $250 billion. I mean, we all have had grandparents who lived through the Great Depression who have money now, but still cobble together pieces of soap in the shower. And, yeah. And don't throw away tinfoil. But that PTSD, even 20 years later? I, I think I think that's possible because, you know, if the days turn terribly dark, I mean, that's m several years worth of operating capital that can keep it going. I mean, I don't I don't argue for a second that that's the rationale for keeping that much cash, um, but it certainly isn't going to, you know, Apple isn't in any danger of being anything less than a going concern for the foreseeable future. So. Um, the only other thing I can think of is, you know, an activist investor, but we've already had that. Carl Icahn uh, pressed Apple to basically pay a better dividend, and I think he won that argument. Not Probably didn't get what he wanted, uh, not everything that he wanted, but I think he got most of what he wanted. And so, you know, what other companies do you see out there that are so big and so wonderful and so important that Apple could own them? you know, or should own them. You could argue Twitter. I did once um, that there might be some synergies there, but really not, you know, Facebook. Well, not really. Um, what does Apple have to own? I can't name a company. 
I can't name a single solitary company that Apple has to own that it has to spend five billion or ten billion or twenty billion dollars to to acquire it. I'll tell you what my beef is, and I had a real awakening when you know mine is a 2012 model Toyota with. Uh, I feel like I own a Bentley with any car that has decent Bluetooth in it because I can go around using Spotify and the steering wheel control and I can talk to people and you know I can drive a couple of hours to Charlottesville or to DC and I can feel like master of my own domain. But I have a serious problem in that I can't turn the car on with my phone during a hot day and have the AC start or turn it on when, when it's covered in snow and I'm trying to dig it out of snow. Um, that seems to be the next frontier to me. It's kind of bifurcated between that and the living room and the TV set. And I have an Apple TV and it's, it's fun, but it's not necessarily essential. And I'm wondering if they need to, I wonder what Steve Jobs would have done. And Steve Jobs is not a financial ledger domain person. He never really talked much about the stock price or purported to care about the stock price. It's like a quotidian mundane thing that Tim Cook has to do. But I wonder how much they're going to get pressured to do something enormous, the more this, this kind of passivity stands. Well, I mean, think about the car. Think about how your life will be fundamentally different if you didn't have to drive. That drive to Charlottesville, what could you get done if you didn't have to think about making the turns and making the lane changes? Well, I would be on my iPhone. <laughs> you would be on your iPhone. You would be getting things done. You'd be getting work done. You'd be editing scripts and checking with sources and talking to people and keeping up with your Twitter feed. You'd be getting things done. You know, consider consider that that lifestyle change for anybody who commutes 90 minutes to work every day. That's, you know, combined between home and the office, that's three hours. How, what would you do with that extra three hours being productive? Would you work less at the office and go home at four o'clock and say, I'll get the rest done in the car? Yeah, you might. And you might see your family earlier. You might be able to stay for breakfast before going to work and see your kids off before they go to school. You know, just think about that. How would your car change if you used it for more than getting to and from work? What kind of car would you have to take you and your family on vacation? You know, would you have different cars for different occasions, all of them driving you and self-driving you in different places? How would the experience change if you and your entire family are on a, you know, vac you know the, the summer vacation to the lake, you know, what would you do if the car is driving you and you can be engaged with them rather than focused on the road? These are fundamental questions that I think Apple is probably dealing with right now. And it's not the only one, you know, Uber's thinking about it. Lyft is thinking about it. Tesla is thinking about it. The major car makers, Ford, is make, are thinking about it in Detroit. So, I mean, if you were to think about something that Apple could conceivably own, that moment when it comes to cars, when it comes to having a car on the road that it wants to sell, you know, maybe there's an opportunity in Detroit. Maybe there's an opportunity with a car maker in Europe that, you know, might be you know, in a distressed condition, but still has an active dealer network or an active manufacturing base or active, 
you know, something, something that's worthwhile. That could become the something enormous that you think about. I just don't know what it is yet. I'll tell you what, my man, I will invite you back on this show in 10 years. If one podcast still exists, we didn't even talk about podcasts. You look at the oh, root yeah. word of podcast, pod, iPod. And two, yeah. if we're not all brandishing hooli smartphones that don't explode in our laps. Uh, <laughs> inside reference, Eric Hesseldahl, you are a gentleman and a scholar. I'm so grateful that you took the time finally to come so on glad. the show. <laughs> so glad. It's been a long time coming, Robin. It's been a long time since we rock and rolled. Full disclosure, find us and love us on NPR One. You can find the links on Facebook.com slash Full D Radio on iTunes, Apple iTunes, at FullDRadio.com. Nice and modular on your fancy newfangled iPhone. We tweet at FullDRadio.com. And you know what? We think different like snow leopards in the iCloud. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>